The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church and is part of our series in 1 John. For previous messages or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Well, good morning. I hope you're doing well this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them. And as you probably guessed, uh, turn with me to 1 John. Uh, for those of you who don't know exactly where 1 John is your Bible, just go to the back. And if you hit 2nd or 3rd John, Jude or Revelation, you've gone too far. Other than that, just keep going, all right? Uh, this morning, we start a brand new series, and I believe it is going to be an incredible series for us as a church. I'm a little bit um, excited today, so you'll have to forgive me, because not only are we starting a brand new uh, series, but we had a, an appreciation breakfast earlier this morning, and I looked out and just saw the people that, that God has brought to our church, and it's overwhelming. So I'm coming out of that. I'm all excited and energized, and now this, it, it doesn't get better. Um, so I am really excited to, to jump in together and before we jump into 1 John, I think it's important for us, since this is a brand new series, to lay out a little bit of context for us. So uh, we are looking at a book. I bet you can guess the author. You got it? It's John. It's John. There's no, this is not a trick question. Uh, John is the same man, okay, that, that wrote the Gospel of John. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The same man who also wrote 2nd and 3rd John, and the same man who wrote Revelation. He's, uh, he's contributed a lot to, to our Bible. Um, keep this in mind, too. This is John, the friend of Jesus. He was an eyewitness to Jesus. More than that, though, he was one of Jesus' closest friends. He walked with him. He saw him. He did life with him. He was an eyewitness. And, and here in our letter, John is going to address a, a problem. Turns out a really important problem. Um, I like to view this letter, as we're about to read it, as, as like a sermon in written form. And we'll kind of look at that as we go. But it was written by John this, with a pastor's heart to shepherd this church, this group of churches. And so here's what had happened. So Jesus came on and lived his life here on earth, lived a perfect life. He was, he was arrested, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was crucified. He died, and on the third day, he rose, conquering death, conquering the grave, conquering uh, sin. He rose. Um, Jesus changed everything, and after Jesus' resurrection, the Bible says that he was on earth for another 40 days, uh, and after that, or at that point, Jesus, we, we read that he ascended back into heaven. I want to read something to you. Jesus left us with this. I'm going to read you two things. Uh, first, Acts 1.8. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Right? He says, I'm about to go, but I'm going to send you my spirit to empower you. Okay, And then... Again, in Matthew, this is the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So our Savior ascends into heaven and he leaves us with this all-encompassing mission that we're to, to be about. But he didn't leave us on this mission with nothing. He left us empowered, right? You following me? All right. Uh, the church was, was born. And I want you to just think for a moment. God's spirit indwelled the church. Like the power of God himself was in the church, giving them the power to accomplish all that they had been sent to do. And so shortly after uh, Jesus said these things, his words came true. So as a, as a group of Jewish believers met together, the Holy Spirit came on them and indwelled them for the first time. It was just what Jesus had said. Uh, moments later, the same thing happened to a group of Gentile believers. And all of a sudden, the people of God were indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the power of God, for the first time. I want to ask you, um, who could ever stand against that church, right? Who could ever stand against that church? A group of people who are radically committed to Jesus and who the very Spirit of God indwells them, empowers them, who could stand against that? Well, as it turned out, um, the church often gets in the way of the church. As it turned out, the problem that the church faced and the problem that John is calling out in this letter actually was a problem from within. It was a problem from within. Uh, it was a division in the church. But as you look deeper, the problem really wasn't division. Division was the symptom. The problem was, the root problem was a doctrinal issue. And we're going to get into this, but all of a sudden, the, the church that was radically committed to the gospel was supposed to be perfectly united to accomplish the mission. All of a sudden, there was division, there was fracturing in the church. And in the division, do you know what it was about? It wasn't insignificant either. The division that this church, it wasn't like worship styles, it wasn't, you know, carpet color, it wasn't anything like personal preference, no. The division they were singing, seeing was about Jesus himself. Already in the church, a group of people had begun to teach and, and, and preach false doctrine about, about Jesus. And, and the false doctrine was actually causing havoc on the church because, because it was leading people away from the church in confusion. This is the context that, that John is, is writing to. So pause button before we actually get into John. Um, how often does that still happen today? We're going to talk more about it here in a moment, but the church is supposed to be unified on mission for Jesus Christ. It's supposed to be unified, but how often is it divided based on false teaching and doctrine? That's where this church was. And so right off the bat, um, hear me, what you believe matters. And what you believe about Jesus matters most. Let me repeat it. What you believe matters. It deeply matters. And what you believe about Jesus matters most. Um, our culture, I'll put it like this, is fine with you talking about God. They are fine with that. Uh, in fact, 
most religions are comfortable having that conversation with you about God. That's, that's good. But what sets us apart from all other religions and worldviews, uh, the cornerstone of our faith, the most important question is this, and this is gonna, we are going to pivot on this question all morning, is what do you do with Jesus? Right off the bat, this is the question that we are going to seek to answer. What do you do with Jesus? with Jesus. Um, here in this letter, John is, is calling these churches back and protecting them from a false doctrine about, about Jesus. And I'll say this before we, we get in. What John deals with uh, is irreducibly Christian. And what I mean by that is you cannot remove this and still be called Christian. What John is dealing with is the foundation of everything we stand on. It's irreducibly, foundationally Christian. And I'm excited about this series because my hope is, is that as a church, it will build for us, strengthen our foundation. That we have a strong foundation that we can, that we can build on. So having said that, let's look at verses 1 through 4 uh, together. That's where we're going to be this morning. Do you ever get emails like this? Uh, emails that have absolutely no introduction. There's no like, hello, Justin, hope this finds you well. Hope your day is going well. There's no intro. It's just like, boom, straight into business. Like, you open it, there's no, you know, it's just, this is what needs to be done, and I'm thinking about this. It just drops straight into business. So, I get emails like this all the time, and 99.99999% of the time that I get these emails, what, it, what does it signify? It signifies, I'll put it like this, I only get emails like this from people that I know. That people, people that are close, like my wife sends me emails like this. We don't need to, you know, talk about, I mean, she just gets straight to the point. Um, my close friends send me emails like this. My uh, close coworkers send me emails like this. It, it, it signifies closeness. Well, that's exactly what happens in, in 1 John. That's what, 1 John, that's what John does here. He goes 0 to 60. I mean, if you read the first sentence, it's, it's kind of odd, right? You would get this letter and just drop in no introduction, no hope this finds you well, my beloved brothers, as normal letter. No, just write, write in, because John is close to these churches. They know him, he knows them, there's a closeness involved in this. Um, that's why there's no fluffy introduction. Let me read verse, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. I told you, just drops right in. So right at the beginning, the question we need to ask is, is, who is the word of life? What is that? Like, that's what it seems to be. What is that? Well, to help us answer that, I want to compare this text with uh, another text written by John. All right? You don't have to turn here. I'm going to put them on the screens. So John, in his gospel, he starts it off. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We move down, verse 14. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So according to John, the word becomes flesh. According to John, the word was in the beginning. So who is John, to whom is John referring? Jesus. The word of life is, is Jesus Christ. So right off the bat, John says, Jesus is the word of life who was from the beginning, right? Who we have heard, who we have seen, who we have we've touched him. And remember that what we said at the beginning, John was a close friend of Jesus. This isn't, you know, spiritual lingo here. He means it. I touched him. I knew him. I ate with him. I did life with him. I saw, I saw him. I'm an eyewitness of him. And so let me, let me put it like this. Let's read this again. I want, to keep, I want you to keep this in mind as we read it, though. One of the most powerful tools of a communicator or, or, or a writer is repetition. So you repeat something that you want your audience to get. You repeat what's important, right? You repeat what's, what's important. See, I just did it. Didn't, didn't know I did it. Um, with, with that in mind, listen to this. So that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard and proclaim also to you. You, you hear the repetition in that um, it's, it's almost as though John is kind of pounding the point that Jesus was real. I saw him. I, I touched him. I heard him. I saw him. We heard him. I saw him. We heard him. And this is three verses. He's pounding this point. Jesus was not fiction. He wasn't a floating spirit. He wasn't an idea. He was a man. He was here. He saw him. He, was, he heard him speak. With, he saw him with his own eyes. He was flesh and blood. Why is John doing that? Why is John doing it? Why is John making this point so strong? Because this is the primary issue that was dividing the church. So right off the bat, John addresses it. Um, there was a group of people in the church who eventually left the church, but were, all, were calling others to join them. And, and who were teaching false doctrine, as we said, about Jesus. And to summarize it broadly, we can get in depth about this, but we're not going to do that this morning. Um, they were teaching that, that Jesus could not be 100% man and 100% God. He, he could not, God could not be a man because men are unclean, they're dirty, they're sinful. Jesus could not have been both. Um, Jesus was either a man who just appeared to be godly, or he was God and not a man. He could not have been both. He was not both um, God and man. And so some of the, some of the church who were struggling with this um, had come to the conclusion that he, he really wasn't fully man. Okay, so the context of this letter, the, the church is being torn apart by this doctrine that says Jesus wasn't really a man, he was just God. He wasn't really uh, a man. Um, now hearing this, let's just again push the pause button. Uh, some of you here, is that what this series is going to be about? This whole Jesus is God, Jesus is man thing, got that, check. 
I don't need to, I mean, we're good here, right? Um, good. I'm glad you believe that. I'm not put coming down on you for that one. Um, but I want to encourage you to think about this deeper because the conversation gets a lot more real when it kind of comes into our quote-unquote neighborhood. Um, let me give you this example, and this is an example that I have had often living in the area we, we live in. Um, this conversation is similar to the one you would have with your Mormon friends and neighbors. Um, although you would have great conversations about God, about your purpose, about God's calling, about love, about morals. In fact, some of them would sound more Christian than Christians. You would be all on board. We're, we're on the same team. If you were to talk to some of our, our Mormon friends, but your conversation would hit a massive roadblock, a massive roadblock as you turn your conversation to Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man. This is where the rubber would meet the road. This is the, the area of contention. And again, what you believe matters. And what you believe about Jesus matters most. I would propose that this is incredibly important for us this morning to get. Because although some of us may believe it, I don't know if we know why. And we're going we're gonna to dig into this. And this is the fact that, that, um, that John was, was talking through. And it's this question, what do you do with Jesus? Was he fully God, fully man, or was he something else? You have to answer that question. That's the question that we're going to be asking this morning. That's the point of contention in the letter, and I would propose it's the point of contention today. And so John, right off the bat, hammers home, Jesus was man. He was God in flesh. He says, we have heard, right? We, meaning not just me, but I'm, I stand shoulder to shoulder with eyewitnesses who saw him. We have seen, we have heard, we have touched him. Jesus was God in flesh. Um, so Candace and I were married a little over five years when we decided to start trying to have kids. And by the grace of God, um, shortly thereafter, Candace started getting sick daily for no reason. And then it clicked, and the pregnancy test confirmed. Oh, that's what's happening. That's what's going on. Um, we, we, were, we were pregnant. Our first kid, uh, our first kid, uh, Micah was in there, right? We were parents. How insane is that? Um, any other first-time parents in the room feel like you are severely underqualified for that moment? Just us. That was us, all right? We, we were there. Um, from that moment, though, Micah was in there. He was growing. He was, he was changing every single, uh, every single day. And so for nine months, we prepared ourselves. We prepared ourselves, we prepared our home, we prepared our car, we prepared everything possible for us to be ready for this little bundle of energy to, uh, to, enter, to enter our home. Um, I'm not sure that any parent is truly ever really ready, but we were, we were ready. Uh, the, first, or the third trimester was rough, uh, and I know I'm the guy, so I really don't have any room to talk about that, but it was rough because it was the heat of the Dallas summer. Candace was ready, all right? She was, she was truly ready to have this baby. We only had one false alarm, 
So we went to the hospital, and they looked at her and said, um, and said, things look great, but now's not the time. I was like, can you look again? Just <laughs> check. But I didn't say that. Um, a week later, though, it was, in fact, go time. We arrived at the hospital. Um, honestly, everything was really a blur. Everything was a blur. Everything happened so fast. It was like this whirlwind of experiences and emotions. And then after much toil by her, I keep clarifying this, um, by her, um, I heard Micah cry and uh, got to hold him. I got to, to uh, see him and uh, touch him. And all of the expectations was kind of realized in that moment as I held my baby boy. Um, I knew I had a baby boy. I knew I was a daddy. We're not like some of the parents who waited to find gender until, that's just craziness. I'm a planner. I need to know these things. And so we knew I was a baby boy. I knew I was a dad. But wow, did it become real when I held him, when I touched him, when he was yelling at me. Um, the expectations of parents, parenthood was, was um, tangible and fully realized in that moment. Um, in the same way, Jesus is a lot like that. Because in the same way, all of the expectations of the world, the world groaning for its Savior and Messiah, all of that was, was tangible and fully realized with Jesus Christ. Um, John is reminding us the gospel has always been. He's Ephesians, as a church, we looked at Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, it says that God has always had this plan before he created the, the world to love us, to, to redeem us, to adopt us into the family, to forgive us of our, of our sins, that that's always been the plan, that Jesus has always been the plan, right? Jesus has always been the plan. And then, church, Jesus came in the flesh, touchable, visible. Seeable. It's not even a word. Visible, tangible. He was there. And the plan of God now had flesh on it. Uh, the, the good news, the gospel now had, had flesh. Um, the gospel became tangible. Jesus made our gospel tangible. And John is pointing back at that. And so I want to ask this begs the question, because John is very clear with where he's going in this first few verses. Um, a question I think we need to ask ourselves more often, honestly. Why does that matter? Why does it matter? If someone came and asked you, does it really matter that much if God was both man and God? Does it really matter? Does it matter if he did all the things that it says? Does it matter if he said all those things? Does it matter if he was really a literal man? You don't have to answer out loud, but how would you respond? Church, you need to know how to respond to that. Because that is the attack against Christianity. And if that falls, we fall. We need to have an answer for that question. Um, let's turn to Hebrews 2 with me. Hebrews chapter uh, two, 
And we're going to be in verses 17 and in 18. <clears throat> All right, so I'm going to have it on the screen for those of you who don't want to feel like you're in the Bible drill going back and forth. Um, let me read this. We're going to walk through this slowly. So, therefore he, that he, by the way, is Jesus. We're talking about Jesus in the context here. Therefore he had to be. Important word, had to be made like his brothers. Made like men, right? Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. These are important words. Every respect. Why? Okay? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So let's stop there. We'll, we'll pick it up, but... Um, we talked about this a little in our Job series. Remember when Job was sitting there crying out, God, if there was only someone who could bridge the gap, if there was only a mediator to stand between me over here, sinful, sinner, and between God over here, perfect, if there was only someone to bridge that gap, enter Jesus Christ. He became a man so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to bridge that gap for you. More than that, though, let's continue it says, to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. Um, this is the idea that, that your sin cannot stand in the presence of a perfect God. It cannot. The Bible tells us that, that um, God has wrath towards sin. He is perfect. He can't be in the presence of sin. So what does that mean? It means that your sin must be dealt with some way. Your sin had to be dealt with in some way. Enter Jesus Christ. Propitiation is the act of Jesus where, get this, he turns away the wrath of God, right? He turns away the wrath of God by offering himself instead. When we say that he died the death we deserved and the wrath of God was satisfied, we sing this, I believe we're about to sing this later in our service, um, this is what we mean. This is what we mean. So think about this, church. Now, because Christ became a man, accomplished all that he had uh, accomplished, um, the wrath that you deserve because of your sin is now turned away because he offered himself up instead. Now, I know that is incredible news, but we're going to even go further. Even more than that, listen to this. We continue in Hebrews 2. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In your struggle, in your sin, in your temptation, he is able to help. So not only does Jesus out you as a sinner, right? Um, let's go ahead and ask you how many are sinners? If you're new with us, visiting, you're going to love it here. <laughs> Fit right in. Um, we all are. We are all sinners, um, saved by grace. Um, not only, though, were we saved by grace, but I think so often we fail to realize that because of the work of Jesus, we have help when you need it. You are not left alone in your struggle. Because our Savior became a man, he is able to help you in your need, in your struggle, in your, 
in your trial. Does anyone here need that help? I do. I do. And Jesus, because of his work, is there in, to help in time of need. This is good news. Amen? Amen. Um, John is, is proclaiming this, driving this home to, to this church. And I want us to listen to this again. Verse 3 um, in 1 John. It says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. That you can have fellowship with us, you can have fellowship with the Father and in Jesus Christ. So I've heard this said so many times in ministry. And if you said this, don't get offended. Um, I get it. I get the heart behind what I'm about to say. But I've heard this so many times in the church and in, in ministry. Um, doctrine divides. Have you heard that? Uh, there's, this, there's this idea that why study theology? Because the more you study, the more you're going to be angry about people who don't see things the way you see things, and it's going to cause division. Doctrine divides. Theology divides. Um, I've heard someone tell me, let's just focus on love. You know, love God, love others, which, by the way, is a doctrine in and of itself, but we'll get there later. Um, but it's this, let's just get simple, we don't need to look at doctrine. We don't need to know theology. Um, there's this idea that doctrine is for the professional Christians. Pastors, the nerds, right? I'll wear that. Um, that it's not for the average Christian. I want to just propose there are three huge problems with this. There are three really big problems with this. One, we all have theology. All of us, we have theology. You believe in things, and you disagree with things. You follow me? Um, we all have theology. No matter who you are, you can't get away from that. An atheist has theology. We have theology. In other words, in some sense, it, it, the question is not whether or not you're a theologian. The question is if you're a good one or a bad one. We all have theology. Number two, the problem with this is if we don't care to know what we believe or why we believe it, then we are going to believe anything and everything that comes our way. We, uh, whether wrong or right, um, we're going to follow the most convincing and charismatic voice. We're going to follow it. Uh, and honestly, this is the way I, I believe every cult has begun. I don't believe that too many people start into a cult because they get their computer and Google, what's the nearest cult that I can join? Right? That's not how people get into cults. They, they, they get led, these normal people get led astray with teaching, and all of a sudden they find themselves in a place that they never thought they would be. It matters what we believe and why we believe it. The third thing here, the problem is, Doctrine both divides and unites, but it's for our good. It's for our good that doctrine will divide us from what is false and unite us under what is true. <clears throat> Listen to this. Um, 
John says, so that you too may have fellowship with us. What is he saying? There's unity and there's fellowship. He's saying, church, get this right, because when you get this right, you will be united as the church. You will stand together, and you're going to have fellowship with the church. Um, Let me say one more thing, and this might, again, be a little touchy, but um, if you're new with us or new to church, period, you can probably speak to this better than than, than most. Um, often, we as the church um, break fellowship with other Christians uh, for terrible reasons. Absolutely terrible um, reasons for whether it be personal preferences or for things that aren't essential, we split and we split and then we split and we split. Um, Think of all the denominations and churches in our city. Some of these started for incredible reasons. Some of these started because a group of people thought, we need to take the gospel here. Let's go start a church here. We need to take the gospel to this community and and spread the gospel. That is awesome. In fact, that's the way that this church was planted. And in, in a year, we plan on planting another church, and my hope is that that is the way that that church is, is planted. Um, for the, the sheer reason of we want to see the kingdom advance. This is great. I am not putting that down in any way, shape, or form. Um, our churches look different, but praise the Lord, as we are diverse and united under Jesus Christ. That is not what I'm talking about, but so many, too many churches are started under completely different circumstances. You may have been a part of, of one of the, that, that split from another church, disagreements, arguments, that leads to another church being started. And I'm not talking about arguments that are based on essential doctrines. I'm talking about not based on the essentials of our faith, but uh, on minor issues such as personal preferences, personal opinions, or uh, minor, minor issues. And church, the reason I say that is because I would make the argument that a right understanding of doctrine, a right understanding of theology, will allow us to both be unified and diverse. Unified and diverse. Because that's our gospel. But the wrong understanding of theology a haphazard doctrine or theology, I think, will divide us over secondary matters. It matters what we believe. Um, A wrong understanding will allow differences to divide us instead of us celebrating diversity under Jesus Christ. What we believe Matters And in this text, he's saying, church, we are united together because of the work of Jesus Christ. We have fellowship together because of the work of Jesus Christ. And more than that, um, listen to this, because it's absolutely essential. He, he says, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Let me put it like this. You cannot have a relationship with the Father while rejecting the Son. You cannot have a relationship with the Father while rejecting the Son. I want to read something else from John. This comes from John, the Gospel of John in, in chapter 14. It says, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth 
and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The Father can only be known through the Son. You cannot have a relationship with the Father while rejecting the Son. This is foundational to our faith. This is a non-negotiable. It is foundational to our faith that the Father is known, seen, and heard through the Son, that Jesus is the tangible gospel. Uh, Church, we must give ourselves to this. Collectively, we must give ourselves to this. I'll put it like this. We will die on the hill for this one. We're going to die on the hill for this one. We stand together. Jesus is not a way, a truth, a life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. We stand on this, and we are relentlessly committed to this message. Um, If you take that message away from us, If you were to take that message away, our doors would close next week. Our doors would close next week because in this is the power, in this is the life, in this is the truth, and without this, let's go camping. Something, right? We wouldn't be here, though, because Jesus is everything. When you join our church, um, You're not joining a movement of a pastor personality. You're not joining a movement obsessed with growing for the sake of growing. I promise you. You are not joining a movement for the sake of building our little kingdom here. When you join this church, you're joining a gospel movement. And what I, what I mean by that, when I say that, is that we are committed, radically committed, lives to, to living our lives in response to the gospel message. This is why we gather together, right here. This is why we gather. This is also why we scatter out of here into our community. This is why we're obsessed with multiplying and planting churches. It's because of this. Jesus is everything. But it's not just everything for us collectively, but Jesus is everything for us personally. Listen to the way John ends our, our section. I can so strongly relate he says, and, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We're not writing so that um, their joy can be complete. We're, we're, John is saying, we write these things so that our joy may be complete. So what is going on there? I can relate to this because think of it like this. If Jesus is everything... If he is exactly who he says he is, if he is the only way to the Father, the truth, the life, if he is everything, nothing on earth brings me more joy as a pastor. Nothing on earth brings me more joy than when I see someone respond to the gospel for the first time. Nothing brings me more joy. It's unbelievable. When I see the light bulb moment, Oh, that's who Jesus is? That's what he did? That's why it matters when I see that light bulb moment. Um, There's nothing that brings more joy in my life as a pastor. John is expressing that same heart. 
He's writing this letter expressing who Jesus is, who he is, why it matters. Because he knows if these people, these churches would have that light bulb moment, his joy would be complete. This is everything. He's writing so that his joy would be complete. Um, No matter who you are, where you are this morning in your faith, no matter what brings you into this room uh, this this morning, um, I want to finish our time by just responding to the gospel and asking that same question that we began with, and that is this. What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? With Jesus, do you believe he was who he said he was? Do you follow him or do you ignore him and reject him? Church, you cannot be neutral about this one. You cannot be be neutral because he is everything. He's our foundation of our faith. He's the cornerstone. He's the one who holds all of it together. He's the author. He's the perfecter of the faith. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He is everything. He is the one we stand on for salvation. Um, not our good works, but our good Savior. Uh, not anything we, we have done, anything we will do, but what he has done. That's what we stand on. Jesus is Everything. What do you do with Jesus this morning? You have to have an answer for this because just being neutral on this is not an option. We must answer the question, what do you do with Jesus this morning? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son who came, who lived a perfect life in the presence of men and and witnesses and that that he, he gave himself, that he gave his life, that he conquered death, that he rose, and that he gave us victory, that he died my death and gave me his life. God, I thank you for that, and I thank you that Jesus is not just this fluffy idea, but that he is real, that he makes our good news, our message tangible, that that because of him, we have a reason to be here this morning, and because of him, we have a reason to go out tomorrow to live our life for him, called according to his purpose, because he really came. And God, I just pray that as we wrestle with this question of what now do we do with Jesus? Do we accept him, believe in him, respond in faith to him, or do we reject him, deny him, or ignore him? What do we do with Jesus? As we answer that question right now, in this moment, I pray that your spirit begins to turn on the light bulbs, that for, for, for us in this room, that we respond to the gospel, for some of us for the very first time, for many of us, for yet another time that we are just overwhelmed by who you are. So God, we thank you for your good news. We thank you that in you, 
we have life. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.